Section thirty of the Martyrdom of Man by Winwood Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three, Liberty, Part three. The origin of Venice was different from that of its sister states. In the darkest days of Italy, when a horde of savage Huns, with scalps dangling from the trappings of their horses, poured over the land, some citizens of Padua and other adjoining towns took refuge in a cluster of islands in the lagoons, which were formed at the mouths of the Adige and the Po. From Rialto, the chief of these islands, it was only three miles to the mainland, a mile and a half to the sandy breakwater which divided the lagoons from the Adriatic. At high water the islands appeared to be at sea, but when the tide declined, they rose up from the midst of a dark green plain in which blue gashes were opened by the oar. But even at high water the lagoons were too shallow to be entered by ships, except through certain tortuous and secret channels. And even at low water they were too deep to be passed on foot. Here, then, the Venetians were secure from their foes, like the lake-dwellers of ancient times. At first they were merely salt-boilers and fishermen, and were dependent on the mainland for the materials of life. There was no seaport in the neighbourhood to send its vessels for the salt which they prepared. They were forced to fetch everything that they required for themselves. They became seamen by necessity, they almost lived upon the water. As their means improved, and as their wants expanded, they bought fields and pastures on the mainland. They extended their commerce and made long voyages. They learned in the dockyards of Constantinople the art of building tall ships. They conquered the pirates of the Adriatic Sea. The princes of Syria, Egypt, Barbary and Spain were all of them merchants. For commerce is an aristocratic occupation in the East. With them the Venetians opened up a trade. At first they had only timber and slaves to offer in exchange for the wondrous fabrics and rare spices of the East. In raw produce, Europe is no match for Asia. The Venetians, therefore, were driven to invent. They manufactured furniture and woolen cloth, armour and glass. It is evident, from the old names of the streets, that Venice formerly was one great workshop. It was also a great market city. The crowds of pilgrims resorting to Rome to visit the tombs of the martyrs and to kiss the Pope's toe had suggested to the government the idea of fairs which were held within the city at stated times. The Venetians established a rival fair in honour of St. Mark, whose remains, revered even by the Moslems, had been smuggled out of Alexandria in a basket of pork. They took their materials, like Molière, wherever they could find them, stole the corpse of a patriarch from Constantinople and the bones of a saint from Milan. They made religion subservient to commerce. They declined to make commerce subservient to religion. The Pope forbade them to trade with infidels, but the infidel trade was their life. Siamo Veneziani, poi Cristiani, they replied. The papal nuncios arrived in Venice and excommunicated two hundred of the leading men. In return, they were ordered to leave the town. The fleets of the Venetians, like the Phoenicians of old, sailed in all the European waters, from the wheat fields of the Crimea to the ice creeks of the Baltic. In that sea, 
the pirates were at length extinct. A number of cities along its shores were united in a league. Bruges in Flanders was the emporium of the northern trade, and was supplied by Venetian vessels with the commodities of the south. The Venetians also travelled over Europe, and established their financial colonies in all great towns. The cash of Europe was in their hands, and the sign of the three golden balls declared that Lombards lent money within. During the period of the Crusades, their trade with the East was interrupted, but it was exchanged for a commerce more profitable still. The Venetians in their galleys conveyed the armies to the Holy Land, and also supplied them with provisions. Besides the heavy sums which they exacted for such services, they made other stipulations. Whenever a town was taken by the Crusaders, a suburb or street was assigned to the Venetians, and when the Christians were expelled, the Moslems consented to continue the arrangement. In all the great eastern cities there was a Venetian quarter containing a chapel, a bathhouse, and a factory ruled over by a magistrate or consul. Constantinople, during the Crusades, had been taken by the Latins with the assistance of the Venetians, and had been recovered by the Greeks with the assistance of the Genoese. The Venetians were expelled from the Black Sea, but obtained the Alexandria trade. In the 15th century the Black Sea was ruined, for its caravan routes were stopped by the Turkish wars. Egypt, which was supplied by sea, monopolized the India trade, and the Venetians monopolized the trade of Egypt. Venice became the nutmeg and pepper shop of Europe. Not a single dish could be seasoned, not a tankard of ale could be spiced, without adding to its gains. The wealth of that city soon became enormous, its power, south of the Alps, extreme. Times had changed since those poor fugitives first crept in darkness and sorrow on the islands of the wild lagoon, and drove stakes into the sand, and spread the reeds of the ocean for their bed. Around them the dark, lone waters, sighing, suffering, and the seabird's melancholy cry. Around them the dismal field of slime, the salt and sombre plain. On that cluster of islands had arisen a city of surpassing loveliness and splendour. Great ships lay at anchor in its marble streets. Their yards brushed sculptured balconies, and the walls of palaces as they swept along. Branching off from the great thoroughfares, bustling with commerce, magnificent with pomp, were sweet and silent lanes of water, lined with summer palaces and with myrtle gardens, sloping downwards to the shore. In the fashionable quarter was a lake-like space, the Park of Venice, which every evening was covered with gondolas, and the gondoliers in those days were slaves from the east, Saracens or Negroes, who sang sadly as they rode the music of their homes, the camel song of the Sahara, or the soft minor airs of the Sudan. The government of Venice was a rigid aristocracy. Venice, therefore, has no Santa Croce. It can boast a few illustrious names. However, its Aldine press and its poems in colour were not unworthy contributions to the revival of ancient learning and the creation of modern art. The famous wanderings of Marco Polo had also excited, among learned Venetians, a peculiar taste for the science of exploration. All over Europe they corresponded with scholars of congenial tastes, 
and urged those princes who had ships at their disposal to undertake voyages of enterprise and discovery. Among their correspondents there was one who carried out their ideas too well. Venice was not so much injured by the potentates who assembled at Cambrai as by a single man who lived in the lonely spot on the southwest corner of the Spanish peninsula. That country had been taken from the natives by the Carthaginians, from the Carthaginians by the Romans, from the Romans by the Goths, from the Goths by the Arabs and the Moors. It was the first province of the Holy Empire of the Caliphs to shake itself free and to crown a monarch of its own. The Arabs raised Spain to a height of prosperity which it has never since attained. They covered the land with palaces, mosques, hospitals, and bridges, with enormous aqueducts which, penetrating the sides of mountains, or sweeping on lofty arches across valleys, rivaled the monuments of ancient Rome. The Arabs imported various tropical fruits and vegetables, the culture of which has departed with them. They grew, prepared, and exported sugar. They discovered new mines of gold and silver, quicksilver and lead. They extensively manufactured silks, cottons, and merino woolen goods, which they dispatched to Constantinople by sea, and which were thence diffused through the valley of the Danube over savage Christendom. When Italians began to navigate the Mediterranean, a line of ports was opened to them from Tarragona to Cadiz. The metropolis of this noble country was Cordova. It stood in the midst of a fertile plain, washed by the waters of the Guadalquivir. It was encircled by suburban towns. There were ten miles of lighted streets. The great mosque was one of the wonders of the medieval world. Its gates embossed with bronze, its myriads of lamps made out of Christian bells, and its thousand columns of variegated marble supporting a roof of richly carved and aromatic wood. At a time when books were so rare in Europe that the man who possessed one often gave it to a church and placed it on the altar pro remedio anime sue to obtain remission of his sins, at a time when three or four hundred parchment scrolls were considered a magnificent endowment for the richest monastery, when scarcely a priest in England could translate Latin into his mother tongue, and when even in Italy a monk who had picked up a smattery of mathematics was looked upon as a magician. Here was a country in which every child was taught to read and write, in which every town possessed a public library, in which book collecting was a mania, in which cotton and afterwards linen paper was manufactured in enormous quantities, in which ladies learned distinction as poets and grammarians, and in which even the blind were often scholars, in which men of science were making chemical experiments, using astrolabes in the observatory, inventing flying machines, studying the astronomy and algebra of Hindustan. When the Goths conquered Spain, they were reconquered by the clergy, who established or revived the Roman law. But to that excellent code they added some special enactments relating to pagans, heretics, and Jews. With nations, as with individuals, the child is often the father of the man. Intolerance, which ruined the Spain of Philip, was also its vice in the Gothic days. On the other hand, the prosperity of Spain beneath the Arabs was owing to the tolerant spirit of that people. Never was a conquered nation so mercifully treated. The Christians were allowed by the Arab laws 
free exercise of their religion. They were employed at court, they held office, they served in the army. The caliph had a bodyguard of twelve thousand men, picked troops, splendidly equipped, and a third of these were Christians, for there were some ecclesiastics who taught their congregations that it was sinful to be tolerant. There were fanatics who, when they heard the cry of the muezzin, there is no God but God, and Mohammed is the messenger of God, would sign the cross upon their foreheads, and exclaim in a loud voice, Keep not thou silence, O God, for lo, thine enemies make a tumult, and they that hate thee have lifted up the head. And so they would rush into the mosque, and disturb the public worship, and announce that Mohammed was one of the false prophets whom Christ had foretold. And when such blasphemers were put to death, which often happened on the spot, there was an epidemic of martyr-suicide such as that which excited the wonder and disgust of the younger Pliny. And soon both the contumacy of the Christians and the evil passions of the Moslems, which that contumacy excited, were increased by causes from without. When Spain had first been conquered, a number of Gothic nobles, too proud to submit on any terms, retreated to the Asturias, taking with them the sacred relics from Toledo. They found a home in mountain ravines clothed with chestnut woods, and divided by savage torrents foaming and gnashing on the stones. Here the Christians established a kingdom, discovered the bones of a saint which attracted pilgrims from all parts of Europe, and were joined, from time to time, by foreign volunteers, and by the disaffected from the Moorish towns. The Caliph of Cordova was a commander of the faithful. He united the spiritual and temporal powers in his own person. He was not the slave of Mamelukes or Turkish guards, but he had the right of naming his successor from a numerous progeny, and this custom gave rise, as usual, to seraglio intrigue and civil war. The empire broke up into petty states, which were engaged in continual feuds with one another. Thus the Christians were enabled to invade the Moslem territory with success. At first they made only plundering forays. Next they took castles by surprise, or by storm, and garrisoned them strongly, and then they began slowly to advance upon the land. By the middle of the ninth century they had reached the Douro and the Ebro. By the close of the eleventh they had reached the Tagus under the banner of the Cid. In the thirteenth century the kingdom of Granada alone was left. But that kingdom lasted two hundred years. Its existence was preserved by causes similar to those which had given the Christians their success. Portugal, Aragon, Leon, and Castile were more jealous of one another than of the Moorish kingdom. Granada was unaggressive, and at the same time it belonged to the European family. There was a difference in language, religion, and domestic institutions between Moslem and Christian Spain, yet the manners and mode of thought in both countries were the same. The Cavaliers of Granada were acknowledged by the Spaniards to be gentlemen, though Moors. The Moslem knight cultivated the sciences of courtesy and music, fought only with the foe on equal terms, esteemed it a duty to side with the weak and to succour the distressed, mingled the name of his mistress with his Allah Akbar, as the Christians cried, Madame et mon Dieu, wore in her remembrance an embroidered scarf or some other gauge of love, mingled with her in the graceful dance of the Zambra, serenaded her by moonlight as she looked down from the balcony. 
Granada was defended by a cavalry of gallant knights, and by an infantry of sturdy mountaineers. But it came to an end at last. The marriage of Ferdinand and Isabella united all the crowns of Spain. After eight centuries of almost incessant war, after three thousand seven hundred battles, the long crusade was ended. Spain became once more a Christian land, and Boabdil, pausing on the Hill of Tears, looked down for the last time on the beautiful Alhambra, on the city nestling among rose gardens, and the dark cypress waving over Moslem tombs. His mother reproached him for weeping as a woman for the kingdom he had not defended as a man. He rode down to the sea and crossed over into Africa. But that country also was soon to be invaded by the Christians. That part of the peninsula, which is called Portugal, preserved its independence and its dialect from the encroachments of Castile. While the kingdom of Granada was yet alive, the Portuguese monarch, having driven the Moors from the banks of the Tagus, resolved to pursue them into Africa. He possessed an excellent crusade machinery, and naturally desired to apply it to some purpose. In Portugal were troops of military monks, who had sworn to fight with none but unbelievers. In Portugal were large revenues granted or bequeathed for that purpose alone. In Portugal the passion of chivalry was at its height. The throne was surrounded by knights panting for adventure. It is related that some ladies of the English court had been grossly insulted by certain cavaliers, and had been unable to find champions to redress their wrongs. An equal number of Portuguese knights at once took ship, sailed to London, flung down their gauntlets, overthrew their opponents in the lists, and returned to Lisbon, having received from the injured ladies the tenderest proof of their gratitude and esteem. It seems that already there had arisen between Portugal and England that diplomatic friendship which has lasted to the present day. A commerce of wine for wool was established between the ports of the Tagus and the Thames, and with this commerce the pirates of Ceuta continually interfered. Ceuta was one of the pillars of Hercules. It sat opposite Gibraltar and commanded the straits. The king of Portugal prepared a fleet. Great war galleys were built, having batteries of mangonels or huge crossbows, with winding gear stationed in the bow. Great beams, like battering rams, swung aloft, and jars of quicklime and soft soap to fling in the faces of the enemy. The fleet sailed forth, rustling with flags, beating drums, and blowing Saracen horns. The passage to Theuta was happily made, the troops were landed, and the pirate city taken by assault. Among those who distinguished themselves in this exploit was the Prince Henry, a younger son of the king. He was not only a brave knight, but also a distinguished scholar. His mind had been enriched by a study of the works of Cicero, Seneca, and Pliny, and by the Latin translations of the Greek geographers. He now stepped on that mysterious continent which had been closed to Christians for several hundred years. He questioned the prisoners respecting the interior. They described the rich and learned cities of Morocco, the Atlas Mountains shining with snow, and the sandy desert on their southern side. It was there, the ancients had supposed, all life came to an end. But now the prince received the astounding intelligence that beyond the Sahara was a land inhabited entirely by negroes, covered with fields of corn and cotton, watered by majestic rivers, 
on the banks of which rose cities as large as Morocco, or Lisbon, or Seville. In that country were gold mines of prodigious wealth. It was also a granary of slaves. By land it could be reached in a week from Morocco by a courier mounted on the swift dromedary of the desert, which halted not by day or night. There were regular caravans or camel fleets, which passed to and fro at certain seasons of the year. The black country, as they called it, could also be reached by sea. If ships sailed along the desert shore towards the south, they would arrive at the mouths of wide rivers which flowed down from the gold-bearing hills. This conversation decided Prince Henry's career. To discover this new world beyond the desert became the object of his life. He was Grand Master of the Order of Christ, and had ample revenues at his disposal, and he considered himself justified in expending them on this enterprise which would result in the conversion of many thousand pagans to the Christian faith. He retired to a castle near Cape St. Vincent, where the sight of the ocean continually inflamed his thoughts. It was a cold, bleak headland, with a few juniper trees scattered here and there. All other vegetation had been withered by the spray. But Prince Henry was not alone. He invited learned men from all countries to reside with him. He established a court in which weather-beaten pilots might discourse with German mathematicians and Italian cosmographers. He built an observatory and founded a naval school. He collected a library in which might be read the manuscript of Marco Polo, which his elder brother had brought from Venice, copies on vellum of the great work of Ptolemy, and copies also of Herodotus, Strabo, and other Greek writers, which were being rapidly translated into Latin under the auspices of the Pope at Rome. He had also a collection of maps and sea charts engraved on marble or on metal tables and painted upon parchment. At a little distance from the castle were the harbour and town of Sagres, from which the vessels of the prince went forth with the cross of the order painted on their sails. They sailed down the coast of the Sahara. On their right was a sea of darkness, on their left a land of fire. The gentlemen of the household who commanded the ships did not believe in the country of green trees beyond the ocean of sand. Instead of pushing rapidly along, they landed as soon as they detected any signs of the natives, the old people of Massinissa and the Jugurtha, attacked them crying, Portugal, Portugal, and having taken a few prisoners, returned home. In every expedition the commander made it a point of honour to go a little further than the preceding expedition. Several years thus passed, and the black country had not been found. The Canary Islands were already known to the Spaniards, but the Portuguese discovered Porto Santo and Madeira. A shipload of emigrants was dispatched to the former island, and among the passengers was a female rabbit in an interesting situation. She was turned down with her young ones on the island, and, there being no checks to rabbit population, they increased with such rapidity that they devoured every green thing, and drove the colonists across into Madeira. In that island the colonists were more fortunate. Instead of importing rabbits, they introduced the vine from Cyprus and the sugar cane from Sicily, and soon Madeira wine and sugar were articles of export from Lisbon to London and to other ports. In the meantime, the expeditions to Africa became exceedingly unpopular. 
The priests declared that the holy money was being scandalously wasted on the dreams of a lonely madman. That castle on the Atlantic shore, which will ever be revered as a sacred place in the annals of mankind, was then regarded with abhorrence and contempt. The common people believed it to be the den of a magician, and crossed themselves in terror when they met in their walks a swarthy, strong-featured man, with a round barret cap on his head, wrapped in a large mantle, and wearing black buskins with gilt spurs. Often they saw him standing on the brink of the cliff, gazing earnestly towards the sea, his eyes shaded by his hand. It was said that on fair nights he might be seen for hours and hours on the Tower of Babel which he had built, holding a strange weapon in his hands and turning it towards the different quarters of the sky. End of section 30